Hey friends, welcome back to the Brave Marriage Podcast. If you're just joining us, we're in the middle of a series on marriage, mutuality, and gender roles, and so far, we've covered the history of Christian marriage in the modern world, mid-century teachings on Christian marriage, for better or worse. We've talked to a few couples who would consider themselves mutualists or egalitarians, and a few weeks ago, we took a look at what Genesis 1-3 through has to say about marriage, mutuality, and gender roles. So if you haven't taken a listen to that yet, we'll refer to it a lot today, so you can find that episode 136, Relationships in the Beginning. But today, we're taking a look at the infamous Ephesians 5 passage to see what Paul has to say about marriage, mutuality, and gender roles. I gave a talk a few weeks ago to Asbury's Gender Equality Club on the differences between a male headship model of marriage and a true partnership model of marriage. And as some of the students and I got to talking at the end, one of the things that came up was how we can tend to pick and choose Paul's words based on what we want him to say without realizing that Paul's letters to the Colossians, the Corinthians, the Ephesians, Timothy, they are not letters primarily about marriage or gender roles. They are letters to the earliest Christ followers on Christian living in that time and culture based on the teachings and ministry of Christ. In all of Paul's teachings, his theology and Christology is rich. But today, we tend to cherry-pick parts of Paul's writings that apply specifically to marriage and qualifications for ministry in that time and culture, while neglecting the whole of Paul's writings, which are relaying a foundation for the Christian faith based on the teachings, ministry, and life of Jesus Christ, encouraging each of the early churches to remember that they are family that together they make up the body and bride of Christ, and that together Christ has called us to unity, to be one. Not a false unity, where people in the church are peacekeepers rather than peacemakers. Not a false unity, where people aren't allowed to think or discern or discuss truth amongst themselves. But a differentiated unity, where each member of the body is valued because of what he or she brings spiritually, not financially or hierarchically, and where each member is allowed to be whom God created him or her to be, while at the same time living in righteousness and right relationship with God and with each other. It's only after putting Christ above all else that Paul then gives specific instructions to each particular church on how they are to live based on what they're struggling with in their cultural contexts. In the episode I did on Genesis 1-3, through the question we asked at the end was, If God is good, If he is loving, if he created us with full equality and co-rulership over creation, then how, as Christian couples who await the return of Christ, should we live in the here and now? I believe we could be helped by taking a look at how Jesus taught us to do that before reading Paul's letter to the Ephesians. As mentioned in episode 136, when the religious leaders came to test Jesus to ask which of the commandments was the greatest, Jesus replied in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. In John 13, Jesus tells us to love and serve one another. In John 15, 12, he said, My command is this, love one another as I have loved you. Jesus' heart and vision for the church was much bigger than the nuclear family. His desire was that people of every tribe, tongue, and nation would love God, know Him, serve Him, and follow His example. 
We'll talk in a little while about what Jesus had to say about marriage, but what I want us to understand is that Jesus was concerned with the whole world and especially the least of these, that his kingdom be expanded in an upside-down way, starting with a group of disciples and expanding out from there. In John 17, in Jesus' prayer for his followers, Jesus declares himself as having authority over all mankind. He prays for those who believe in him to have eternal life, that they may know God the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ himself who glorified God while on earth by accomplishing the work the Father had given him to do. Then he asked the Father, he says in verses 11 and 12, I am no longer going to be in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, so that they may be one just as we are. Moving to verse 22, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and you loved them just as you loved me. Okay, so Jesus' teachings are what Paul has on the forefront of his mind when he writes his letters to the earliest churches, including his letter to the Ephesians. In fact, Paul instructs the churches to love one another as often as Jesus did. And what's more is that he gives the church instructions for how to treat one another on 59 different occasions, which one author, Robert Sang, has broken down into four themes, love, unity, humble servanthood, and edification and encouragement. I'll link his article in the full transcript on my website. But this is how we are to treat one another as believers and as the body and bride of Christ. We are all, as one body, instructed to live in the following ways with one another, with love, honor, devotion, harmony, encouragement, acceptance, admonishment, teaching, care, service, confession, forgiveness, patience, truth, kindness, compassion, submission, humility, forbearance, prayer, comfort, exhortation, edification, hospitality, like-mindedness, stewardship of our spiritual gifts for the sake of one another, and mutually spurring one another on to love and good works. Thus, having started with the teachings of Jesus, which informed the teachings of Paul as he relayed them to the various churches, it's from this place that I want us to come to the book of Ephesians. So in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul recounts the goodness of God, the blessing of redemption, and the headship of Christ in verse 22. In Ephesians chapters 2 through 4, Paul reminds the church that all of them, Jews and Gentiles alike, are saved by faith in Jesus Christ so that no one should boast about their righteousness, their privileges, or any religious or cultural entitlements. Rather, Paul wants the early church in Ephesus to understand that unity and oneness are the priority, and that everyone is responsible for stewarding their spiritual gifts and building up the body of Christ. Everyone is responsible for leaving hardness of heart and sin behind them, and instead walking together as one, just the way Christ taught us and prayed for us before he died so that the church may be built up as a place for the Spirit of God to dwell, and as a signpost for the world at large that they may know Jesus, just as Jesus prayed in John 17. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul talks about his work on behalf of the Gentile believers, helping them understand the mystery of Christ in the church, the mystery being that the Gentiles, like the Jews, are fellow heirs and members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise. 
Remember the promise that God made when he told the serpent he'd send his son to make a way for all of humanity, for those who believe to be reconciled with him? Well, this, Christ, is that mystery that's recently been revealed to believers in the first century AD. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul turns from a recap of Christian theology to instructions for Christian practice. So Ephesians 1 through 3 are a theology of Christ. Ephesians 4 through 6 are instructions for Christian living. And so Paul tells the Ephesian church to walk in a manner worthy of their callings in Christ so that every member of the church might mature and grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. Are you getting a good picture of these metaphors? Christ is the head, we are the body. Christ is the bridegroom, we are the bride. And Christ's desire for us is oneness, unity, togetherness, that we might serve him and point to him by mutually submitting to one another. This is the mystery of the gospel that Paul is referring to, that in Christ we are no longer Jew or Gentile, man or woman, slave or free. We are one. So given Paul's culture, he gives instructions for how various culturally hierarchical relationships should operate. Husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters. But counter to his culture, Paul boldly proclaims a different household code and then, in chapter 6, asks the Ephesian church for prayer that he might keep boldly proclaiming this mystery of the gospel and its radically countercultural implications. So get this, here's what I mean when I say household codes. The Greco-Roman culture had their own hierarchical structure for family life, with the man being known as the pater familius, a Latin word for male head of the household. This meant that families were structured with husbands as heads of households and owners of families' estates, unless a woman had inherited an estate herself. And culturally, their household codes were based on the teachings of Greek philosophers, which structured authority in the family and in society hierarchically. Aristotle, in particular, called this the science of household management, basing his ideas on the belief that only the culturally dominant male was fully rational whereas everyone else had lesser deliberative and reasoning capacities. To quote Aristotle in his work Politics, the slave has not got the deliberative part at all. The woman has it, but without full authority, and the child has it, but in an underdeveloped form. Now, I'd heard about the ancient household codes that families or paterfamilias abided by during this time, but I'd never taken the time to read Aristotle's translated writing until a couple weeks ago. So I want to read you parts of politics so that you can see for yourself how radically different Paul's teaching to the Ephesian church was. So breaking off into Aristotle's politics from Book 1, 1259a. And since, as we saw, the science of household management has three divisions. One, the relation of master to slave, of which we have spoken before. One, of the paternal relation. And the third, the conjugal. For it is a part of the household science to rule over wife and children. For the male is by nature better fitted to command than the female, except in some cases where their union has been formed contrary to nature, in the older and fully developed person than the younger and immature. End quote. Aristotle goes on to say that a man rules over his children as a monarch, whereas a man rules over his wife as an interactive republic yet with the permanency of husband as ruler and the wife as ruled. Same for master and slave. 
The logic here is men, women, children, and slaves have different reasoning capacities and moral virtues which determine the positions they hold within the domestic economy. Furthermore, the point of this social structure is very clearly what Aristotle calls the art of wealth-getting. Aristotle says that all are needed within this economy to play their appropriate parts, because without male rulers to delegate, wives to focus exclusively on domestic and administrative duties, and slaves to carry out manual labor or other menial tasks within the household, the household system will fail to operate in a way that makes the art of wealth-getting inefficient and unproductive. Then, Aristotle ruminates over whether or not everyone within the household is a full human being. And here's what he concludes. Still in Book 1, 1260a, quote, It is evident, therefore, that both must possess virtue, but that there are differences in their virtue, as also there are differences between those who are by nature ruled. Hence, there are by nature various classes of rulers and ruled. For the free rules the slave, the male rules the female, and the man the child in a different way. Hence, it is manifest that all the personas mentioned have a moral virtue of their own, and that the temperance of a woman and that of a man are not the same. One is the courage of command, and the other that of subordination. End quote. So I don't know about you, but the Greco-Roman household codes sound a lot like the logic behind recovering biblical manhood and womanhood, which to me is really disappointing because we're thousands of years away from Aristotle and yet his ideas linger despite research, modernity, and common sense which totally refute them. Nonetheless, this is the philosophical and familial context in which Paul was delivering a Christ-centered message to the Jews and the Gentiles. So with an understanding of the hierarchical household codes, which were in place for economic efficiency, political gain, and designed for the art of wealth-getting, we now turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. God's example, Paul tells us, is love for his children and that we are to walk in his ways. How do we do that? Well, take Christ, for example, the Son of God who came in human form, took on flesh, loved us as God does, and laid down his life that we might live. Jesus did not concern himself with political gain or wealth building, as the Jews kind of expected him to. Rather, Jesus explicitly taught and modeled that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. This is how we, as men and women, as husbands and wives, are to live as the church, loving each other and laying down our lives for one another as the metaphorical representation of the body and bride of Christ. Verses 3-7 through seven. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. There should not be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Do not be partners with them. 
Okay, let's think about this for a second. Let's think about what kinds of sexual immorality are being exposed in the church right now and church leadership. Let's think about the impurity that goes on behind closed doors, even in marriage, as Hebrews 13.4 warns against. Let's think about the greed and the vanity metrics that are so often sought after in Christian circles, or the obscenity or foolish talking, of which I will admit to you I've been guilty, or the coarse joking that goes on, of which others have been guilty, like telling members of the body of Christ to go home. Equally as serious as the instructions Paul gives for how husbands and wives are to live in marriage in chapter 5, Paul says no immoral, impure, or greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God, just as Jesus told the religious leaders and Pharisees in Matthew 23, among other places. But conveniently, parts of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 get forgotten by the time we get to Ephesians 5, 22. That's why, as the church, we have to talk about these things openly and honestly so that we can confess our sins and grow in maturity and into him who is the head, Christ. Let's keep going. Ephesians 5, 8 and 11 through 13. For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. Now, this is a refrain from how Paul starts his instructions for Christian living in Ephesians 4, 17-25, and we're going to leave the middle of chapter 5 for a moment to understand what Paul wrote in chapter 4. In chapter 4, Paul says essentially, Do not live as those who listen to Aristotle's teachings live. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from God due to the hardness of their hearts. They've given themselves over to sensuality, impurity, and they are full of greed. But that is not the teaching of Christ or obedience to the truth that is in Jesus. And if this language sounds familiar to you, it's because Paul in chapter 4 is using the language of Jesus to talk to the church in Ephesus. Let's take a look at Jesus' conversation with the Jewish religious elite in Matthew 19, 3-8. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, no person is to separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. In other words, everything may be permissible, but not everything is beneficial especially when you are to be living as one in Jesus Christ. That's the point of that passage. And so when Paul talks about the hardness of your hearts, he's drawing imagery from Jesus' words to the Pharisees. So jumping back to Ephesians, Paul is saying you can structure your families as the Greco-Roman household codes instruct. You can follow the patterns of wealth getting and greed as they do. You have free will, but know that as Christ followers, 
You are called to something different, a different way of life. You've been given a new life, a new self. So put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, for you are all members of one body. And what does Paul say about being one body? That Christ, the head, gave the church, the members of his body, new life, new status, new legacy, and gifts to equip his people for works of service until we all reach unity in faith and in knowledge of the Son of God. And Paul says in 4.14 that once we, Christ's body, live like this, then we will no longer be infants in our understanding of Scripture, but we will be mature, full grown-ups in Christ, who is the head. So based on this teaching, regardless of our race, socioeconomic status, do you think that Christ desires for any of us to be immature, greedy, underdeveloped parts of his body? No, <laughs> of course not. Chapter 4, verse 16 says that from Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting part, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is a very different model from the art of wealth getting that Aristotle describes, where humans are not thought of as entirely equal but is structured hierarchically according to his philosophy of people's mental capacities. In Greco-Roman culture, the family is structured, husband, then wife, then child, then slave. But in Christ, according to Paul's letter, the family is structured Christ and church, period. We are one, all of us seen as children and as valued members of his household. And if one, then this is how we are to live. Paul addresses everyone in the church at Ephesus as dearly loved children, asking them as a parent would ask siblings to be kind to one another, to sacrifice for one another, and to submit to one another in love for the sake of the family of God and in submission to Jesus Christ, our Lord. Furthermore, in contrast to Aristotle's teaching, Paul does not disrespect women, children, or slaves by talking to the men in the church about them. Instead, after calling them siblings and children of God, Paul totally subverts Aristotle's pairings, his three divisions of household management, by directly addressing wives first and husbands second, giving husbands nearly double the instructions for Christian living. Paul then addresses children first and father second, and in chapter 6, he addresses slaves first and master second, reminding all that God does not show favoritism, just as Jesus would have done. And Paul, even in his teaching and writing, is modeling the way of Christ in laying down his place as a Jewish man and a Roman citizen in that, in his culture, by directly engaging women, children, and the cultural least of these in his writing. Now we get to the husbands and wives section, verse 21 through 24. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So we often read these verses and we go, the husband is the head of the wife, or wives submit to your husbands. And we can tend to stop our reading there rather than completing Paul's thoughts. The actual phrase is, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, which Paul goes on to explain. And so, I think we need to look at how Christ is the head of the church before moving on in this passage. 
Christ doesn't proclaim his status in any sort of entitled way. Instead, Christ is the head of the church in that he modeled what he told us in Matthew 23, 11-12, that the greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted, just as Christ was, as Paul outlines in Philippians 2, 3-9, when he wrote to the church at Philippi, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. This is how Christ is the head of the church. In other words, Paul is saying, your cultural context is telling you that your husband is the head of the household, and this is nothing new to you. But what I'm telling you is that husbands, you are to demonstrate your headship or your privilege as paterfamilia in the same way that Christ demonstrated his headship with you. He didn't lord it over you. He didn't pride himself on being macho or stoic or leading you well spiritually. Instead, Christ made himself nothing, caring more about people than profit, caring more about being faithful to the least of these than being first, and caring more about subverting cultural expectations and challenging the worst in human nature rather than sanctifying it. Therefore, Paul was saying husbands were to radically love their wives in the same way Christ did in submission to her, while wives were to radically respect their husbands, not as inferior to them, but from a place of full personhood, the status they have now gained in Jesus Christ, in submission to him. Does this totally change the way that you read this? I know it does me. All right, let's finish out Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I, Paul, am talking about Christ and the church. Now, I did a word study on verse 30, as Haley mentioned in our last episode, where she and Brandon showed us what mutuality in marriage looks like in real life. And anyway, in my word study, using an interlinear Bible that puts the Greek above the English translation, where it talks about us being members of his body, in the Greek, it actually reads something like this. For members we are of the body of him, of the flesh of him, and of the bones of him. So when you read it like that, this love poem that we see from Genesis 2 with Paul's next verse, 31, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and become one flesh, we can see how this imagery of oneness is threaded all throughout the scripture. And Paul talks about Christ and his church in this way because the Bible 
among so many other things, is a love story about God's love for his people and the life-giving relationality and spirituality we find in him and in relationship with each other. And I love this, this interconnectedness of the biblical emphasis on love and oneness. From being introduced to God and his plans for men and women in marriage in the book of Genesis, to reading about God's faithfulness and fidelity in books like Song of Solomon, Hosea, and Malachi, to being introduced to Jesus and his heart for marriage in the book of Matthew, and Paul's emphasis on the bride's unity and oneness in Christ. And even though Paul was single and preferred that we all be like him in single-minded devotion to Christ, he takes the time to present a picture of what marriage should look like when starting from a place of mutual submission, out of reverence for and in service to God. Now, in episode 136, we talked about how male headship and hierarchy were introduced after the fall, nowhere reflected in creation or the original state. But again, to borrow some of my husband Evan's words, because I think he describes this passage well when talking to students, he says, patriarchy is a result of sin, and we still live under its effects today. But in Christ, we are to steward our privilege, just as Jesus did, and just as Paul did, to lay down our lives for others so that they may be empowered, and so that there might be relational equity so that together we can model kingdom marriages and kingdom living within the church in mutual submission, mutual love and respect, and in differentiated unity as we were created to from the beginning. I hope you're beginning to see how bold and radical this letter is that Paul has written. And that's why he ends the letter by saying, pray in the spirit on all occasions, being alert and always keeping on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given to me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. Paul is not delivering a message similar to that of Aristotle, similar to those who promote male entitlement or female subordination. Nor is Paul promoting female entitlement and male subordination, as Haley mentioned last week regarding Paul's letter to Timothy. What Paul is doing is radically proclaiming the good news in his cultural context. And he is crazily, self-sacrificially, chasing freedom for people while he himself is in chains. I'll leave you with a few similar questions as last time. Did anything stand out to you from the text that perhaps hadn't before? How is this rendering of the book of Ephesians or of the Ephesians 5 passage different from the way you've perhaps been taught it in the past? And if the primary message of Jesus Christ is love for God and one another and unity within the church, what might this mean for you, your marriage, your family, your church, and your community? I'll leave you with this benediction from the last sentence of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Peace to the brothers and sisters, in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This has been episode 138 of the Brave Marriage Podcast. I'm your host, Kinsey Dzinski. Podcast editing is by Evan Dzinski. Music is by John Tibbs. Have a great couple of weeks and stay tuned to hear Blake Dean and Aaron Moniz talk about why mutuality matters. See you next time. Love is not a battle 
love is not a bond. Love is just as fragile 